so I have a love-hate relationship with my lawnmower. Let me tell you why. Uh, sometimes it doesn't work, and I refuse to get an electric one because I like the smell of the exhaust, and, uh, and I like, like fighting with it, so I fight with it every time. Yesterday, I fought with it for about 20 minutes before it got started, and do you know how I fixed it? I have no idea. But I've realized that if, if I start tapping it with certain wrenches in certain places and, and putting gas in some areas uh, and sometimes some oil, and, and yesterday I tightened down the blade and it just started going. And I said, I'm not going to fight it. We're just going to keep going. It's working for once. And I mowed the lawn for the last time, right, for the next like six months. But it was one of those things. I have no idea why this is working. I have no idea what I did. I, have, I couldn't tell you what I did. Carrie thinks I'm a genius because I can fix it. I'm not going to tell her that I'm not, even though she just heard. But I have no idea why it's fixed, why it's running. It's just running, and I go with it. Have you ever had that happen? You can't explain why something's working so well, but you just go with it. And you fake it till you make it right? Is that what we're supposed to do? Okay, cool. So this is kind of what's happening as we look into the book of Acts. Things are working for some reason with this church. We know why. The, the Holy Spirit has descended on them. God, this was God's plan since, since, you know, since Adam and Eve sinned. This was the plan. And so it's working for them. And they don't know why it's working. But every page, when you look at the first you know, five to 15 chapters of Acts, the place is just hopping and it's growing. And if you were to ask them, all Peter can say was, we're not drunk, it's just working, right? End of Acts chapter two, these people are drunk. No, we're not drunk. This is God working through us. And then there's little bookmarks at the end of the, the first few chapters. At the end, in Acts 2.41, it says, and there was 3,000 more of them that were added that day. So let's put that in perspective. If they were a small church, you know, in the upper room, there was probably about 30 or 40 of them up there after Jesus died, and they're all hiding out. They're waiting for this thing to come. They don't know what the Holy Spirit is yet. They don't know what they're going to do, but they're all waiting. And all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit comes and knocks them flat, and they go from about 30 or 40 to 3,000 overnight. you believe that? Can you imagine what that would be like? That I don't even know how many times that is, but some of you are smarter than I am. You can be like, well, that's 16.56 times. I don't know. It goes from 30 or 40 to 3,000. And that's usually just counting the men. There's more than that. And then you keep going and you get to uh, Acts 2.47. And it says that the Lord added to their number daily. And so it wasn't just 3,000 and one bop saying, okay, there you go you're good. Nope, there's more. And then you get to the Acts 5.14 before the wonderful story of Ananias and Sapphira. And even more were added uh, to the Lord. Multitudes, both men and women. So now they're counting both genders. And so all this to say is that the disciples have no idea what's going on. Uh, and, and, and this thing is just working and it's growing. And it's just the 11 or 12 of them in charge. One of them is new to being in charge, Matthias. He came on in Acts chapter 1. And so it's just 12 of them in charge of this enormous megachurch, right? We don't have megachurches yet, and they're not even sure this is a church yet. They don't know what they're playing with, but they're like me with the lawnmower. We have no idea what we're doing, but it's working. And it causes a lot. I imagine it's a lot of stress. Now, we can look at what happens in the early church, and people like to do this. They'll say, well, if you want a successful church, 
You just have to do what they did in Acts, which is true. Tell me what they did in Acts. They don't know either. So we can't really copy what they did. Sure, there's certain things. They, they had prayer, they had community, they took care of one another. But we can look at what they did and go, you know, who added all of these numbers? And it's very clear. The Lord added to their numbers. And it says the Lord added to them. The Lord added to them. It wasn't some grandiose vision that they have a special night for. Uh, their vision was simple. Jesus, prayer, serving people, healing, and hope. That was it. That's been the whole vision of the church. And that should be the only vision of the church because that seems to be what it was when it first started. We like to add certain things like campaigns and things, but now you're going to get me on a whole tangent, which I don't want to go on. But here's what I was getting at. This thing's working. It's growing bigger. And now they're having questions and influxes of people, and they're trying to figure out how to care for one another. They're, they're, we look at Acts 2.42, and Acts 2.42 says that they, they, they met together, they, they shared all their resources, and we look at it and go, well, that's what we should be doing, and that's how we have this, this early form of, of, a, of a communistic way of living. That's not what was happening. What you have there is just families caring for one another. They're coming together. They're united by Christ. They're, they're, being, they're, they're looking at each other going, we can care for you. They weren't trying to sell things because things were bad. They were selling things because they realized they didn't need it, and this guy needed it more, and so we're going to give it to him. And, and they weren't selling property because they thought the world was going to end in three weeks. That's not why they're selling property. They're selling property because they didn't need it, and they were getting rid of it, and they were donating to the church. And so we see that, that, that they're caring for one another, the church is growing, and, and they're building this new kind of family, but what do you do when your family is 500 times the size you thought it was going to be? The pressure in the early church eventually comes to a head, and, and you see it a few times, and not surprisingly, it comes to the head around a, a similar fault line where pressure hits our church in today, uh, the church at large, not just Bethany or Bethany Ballard, but all churches, it hits along the same lines. How do you care for these people that are all with you? How do, how do, we, how do we be a place where we are a family, where we do depend on each other? How do we do this? And, and, and so in Acts, six and, uh, Acts chapter 6, you start to see the first fault line uh, take place. And it's, and it's the same one we have today. It, it, it's, it's a fault line that's, that's pressurized by how do we care for these people? But then on top of it is this fault line where how do we take care of these people in our communities that are from different parts of the earth or speak different languages? These were the growing pains of the church, God's newly formed extended family. So how do they work through these issues? How do we work through these issues? And I think Act 6 gives us a three-step process of how we work through some of the growing pains that we see in the early church and how we work through some of our growing pains. And how do we address the systemic issues in our lives that, are, that, that arrive in our church and in our community? And there's three things I'd like to suggest today. What we see in Acts 6 is that the people saw a problem, they said something about it, so they saw something and they said something, kind of like what you hear when you're at the TSA, right? See something, say something. And then the last thing is they actually did something about it. So let's look. First is to see something. In Acts 6, the people see a problem coming over, coming to them over the treatment of widows, Acts 6, verse 1. It should be on the screen. If not, uh, open your Bibles uh, or, or check on your app. It says this, in those days, the number of disciples was increasing. Again, another growth marker. The Hellenistic Jews complained against the Hebraic Jews 
because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. Luke tells us the problem, but he doesn't tell us all of the problem. There's some contextual things that we need to pay attention here. We have to dig at it a little bit. There's two groups mentioned. Did you catch them? Hellenistic and Hebraic. What did they have in common? They're both Jewish. So it, it's, it's a culture thing. It, it's, they're, they're not different groups. They're, they're, same, they're same, you could say race, they're same ethnicities. They just live in different parts of the world. The two groups mentioned there, uh, they, they don't seem like that much difference, but the differences that we have here is incredibly layered. So count with me. Here's the first layer. They're both widows. So they're Jewish is the first layer. They, they speak different languages. They're both Jewish, and the one primarily spoke Aramaic, or, and the other primarily spoke the Greek languages. Along the languages comes culture, and with those comes culture comes a whole host of other differences. But what we need to see first is that they're both Jewish. The only difference they have is in their languages. Same nationality, different parts of the world. What happened back in the Old Testament, you can read about it in, in Daniel and in some parts of Jeremiah, it's called the diaspora. The Jews scattered across the world. Diaspora means scattered seeds. And so they took off. And so you had Jews living everywhere across the known world at that time. And they would stay Jewish. They would have synagogues in, in their various places of living. That's why we have synagogues in Rome before Paul gets there and synagogues everywhere. And so they were still Jewish, but they lived in a different part of the world. And so every once in a while, they would come back to Jerusalem to worship because that's one of the, the tenets of, of Judaism. And so you have two sets of Jews, Hellenistic, Hebraic. The best way that I can explain this is if you took someone from the heart of New York City and sat them down at a table with somebody from Montgomery, Alabama, it's going to look a little different, right? They're going to have a different type of speech. They're going to have a different type of, of how they relate to another. It's going to be different, different attitude. One's going to want to shout and yell when they're driving. The other one's going to know everybody, right? The stereotypes we play between the North and South. Different sports teams. Don't you dare root for the Yankees in the South. It's not going to go well. They're vastly different, but they're part of the same nation. The next layer we see is that they're both widows. It was common in that day for much older men to marry much younger women. And for a variety of reasons, but most, mostly because of childbearing. This would mean that even uh, it was more likely that the husband would pass away before the wife, leaving her a widow. Men in those days, when they were rounding the final corner of life, wanted to live in Jerusalem because they wanted, they knew that they were dying and that they wanted to be buried close to the temple. It was, it was a thing for them. It was a place of honor. They wanted to be buried next to the holy city. So when, then, when these men moved there with their much younger wives and they died, these women were left as widows. And within the temple system, which is also the next layer, so you have an influx of widows living in Jerusalem, and then you have what the next layer is, is that the Jewish, the Judaism, took care of widows. That was one of the tenets of their faith. It was Jewish law that they took care of them. The people of Israel would, would be known for taking care of vulnerable people. One of the first places we see it, and it's in Exodus, so we have to read it. Exodus 22 says this, Do not take advantage of the widow or the fatherless. If you do, and they cry out to me, I will certainly hear their cry. My anger will be aroused, and I will kill you with the sword. Your wives will become widows, and your children will then become followers. It's pretty clear what happens there, right? 
take care of the widows or God's going to take care of you in another way. And so the, the Judaism and the, the people of Israel took that to heart. There's about four other places in Exodus where it says take care of the widows, take care of the orphans, take care of the immigrant, take care of the infirmed. And so it's the quartet of the vulnerable, and it's very important that they take care of it. And so at harvest time in Leviticus, you can read this, you were only supposed to uh, go over your field once, and then you're supposed to leave the rest for the widows to get food for the year or for that season. Uh, the temple had what, what we would call a, a food bank program, where orphans and widows would come, and, and they would have enough food to get them through the week, or they would have programs or money. They'd they, would take care of them, food and shelter, basic needs that, that they would provide. So you have this culture that as long as you're in the temple system, the widows were cared for. And for a woman in that day, her value came from her being married. And if they were married, it came from them having children. Because if there was children involved, when they grew up, they would take care of mom. But what if they didn't have that? What if you didn't have children? Or what if your children didn't like you and didn't take care of you in that? Now they're left alone. And so the, the woman, women there, the widows, would rely on the temple so long as you were associated with Judaism. So that's the next layer. As all of these numbers are coming to know Christ and joining the church, you have widows who weren't weren't as what we think widows are. They were probably younger, middle-aged women coming to Jesus, coming into the church, stepping out of the temple worship and into worship of Christ. And when they did so, they lost that protection that provided for them. Uh, it's sort of like a friend of mine who is a missionary in Nepal, when he sends me stories every couple weeks of what happens is, is these people come to Jesus, and when they come to Jesus, they're Hindu, and when they're baptized and saved, they lose every right they had as a Hindu resident of Nepal. And now they're on their own. They used to have a care thing with the temple, but now they're, it, it's, it's this kind of issue is still happening in other parts of the world. In Iran, where Christians are ostracized, they're cut off from their family, every support. This is what's happening here. You became a Christian. You're no longer a Jew. And so now, because of that, Hebrew Hellenistic Jews you're done. We're no longer going to take care of you. And so this is the problem. This is the layered problem you see happening there. And because of this, this barely three-month-old church with over 5,000 people has to build a support system as it's taking off. There's going to be some, oh, we didn't see that problem coming, right? So we can understand that there's some issues that were overlooked. And we like to look at this, and it's wrong that we do this. We like to look at this and think, oh, it's totally malicious that those 12 disciples didn't take care of the Hellenistic Jews. No, it's not. This is a live problem. They're just trying to stay afloat. They had no idea what's going. How can them, 12, oversee thousands of this movement that's growing? And so this is an issue that had to be worked through. And when it was noticed, they addressed it. If it was an intentional issue based on someone's language barrier, that's a different story. And they probably would have ignored it and moved on or split the church. And we can get back to that in a few minutes. But what they do is they see it and they do something about it. It was noticed by other Hellenistic Jews. Other Greek-speaking Jews came in and said, hey, we, we see this problem. There's 
there's a problem of people going unseen and uncared for, which is a double problem, and their needs weren't being met, and I don't think that the people in charge know what's going on. There are times in your and my life where there will be people that we notice are getting overlooked. They're getting marginalized. They're being mistreated. They're being uh, discriminated against, either intentionally or non-intentionally. And we have to have the conscious choice of whether you and I are going to actually see it. The first the thing that we need to notice or the first uh, thing that, take, that begins to take care of a problem is actually seeing that there is a problem. And many times it means taking the blinders off of our eyes to, and actually realizing, nope, there's a problem there and I've ignored it for far too long and we can't ignore some of these problems anymore. Sometimes it's painful to see. Sometimes problems of people being marginalized or mistreated or discriminated against based on whatever is that line of, dis, of, of mistreatment, sometimes it's painful and you don't want to see it. You can't believe what you have observed, uh, but we need to see it because something's happening and it's hurting people. Do you have those things around your life now that you're just ignoring, whether they're based on race, whether they're based on abilities, whether they're based on economics, whether they're based on housing? These issues that you look at and go, no, I really don't want to believe that that's happening. I don't want to see it. So the first step that we have to do if we're going to start noticing people around us is actually looking at the problems that we see around us. It's almost like you're the, uh, and then once you start to notice and you see what's happening, sometimes that's all you can see now. It's, it's like Neo in the Matrix, right? Now all he sees is robots and fakeness. Once you take your blinders off and you start to see that, no, there are people in this world that are mistreated, oftentimes that becomes all that you see. And you're tempted, we can be tempted at that point to turn a blind eye as if we just ignore the injustice that we witnessed, or we can actually do something and take some action. When we see something, we're faced with that choice. Do we acknowledge what we see and do something about it, or do we ignore what we see and move on with my life. And this is what's happening in Acts 6. Everything was going great. Things, people were coming to Jesus. The church is catching on. And then there's this problem. And these gentlemen, these, these other Greek-speaking Jews, noticed what's happening, and they, they're faced with the choice. We see this. Now we have to do something about it. Seeing something always leads to saying something. And Luke writes this. This is all from verse 1. The Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. Seeing something is one thing. Saying something is the next. And this is what happens in Acts 6. Now, we look at this and go, uh, they complained. Oh, they're complaining. Yes, we should file a complaint. We should put a box in the back and complain about things. That's, that's not the type of complaining that we see here. That's not what the word means. It's not that they, they, they started protesting outside the church. It's not that kind of complaining. They weren't annoying with it. As they stood in the middle of their gathering, they didn't shout at the top of the lungs, hey, look over there. No, the Greek word is actually this. And it's fun to say, gongizmos. You want to say it? Gongizmos. Uh, it looks like this. Uh, Bruce, I think it, if you guys want to see what the Greek looks like, if we could find it, it's that. That says gongizmos on the left, believe it or not. Um, it means this, a quiet murmur. 
It's a whisper in a hushed voice. It's not yelling. Yelling is a different word. It's kalusima. That's, it's not yelling. Uh, it's gongizmos, which means... Kind of sounds like what it means. Did you see what's going on over here? Yeah, I saw what's going on over here. It's a quiet murmur of a voice. It's, it's a polite whisper. It's, you could trace this word all the way back to Exodus and Numbers, and when the people of Israel complained against Moses, this is the word that was used. Uh, it, mo- they, they, they complained there. They took it a little too far in their complaints. But here, it's a quiet murmur. And this word stands out to me. Because usually when we hear about this type of complaining, it's done at the top of their lungs, which as many pe- with as many people humanly possible to hear what's going on, causing the greatest disruption that we can possibly create. Also, we can say this. Look how they're messing everything up over there. They're terrible people. Right? That's what we think about when we think complaining. That's what we do in our culture. At least that's what I want to do in my life. When someone does something wrong, I, I want them to fail miserably, and I want them to fail miserably publicly. And I want to be the one standing over them laughing at the end of it, going, ha yes, you failed. You're a terrible person. But that's not what's happening here. They didn't want everyone to know about this. That wasn't their point. And it makes sense, right? When we want everyone to know it, it makes sense. Why? Because there's pain in the life that, that was caused, and we think it was intentional, even though it, there's a probably 50-50 chance it wasn't. And even more, we want them to suffer, but we want to complain, and, and we want people to know that we're complaining. And so we complain about somebody being mistreated over there, and we do so in a way that it draws attention to how good and how aware we are, Right? If I stand up and complain loudly, people are going to look at me and go, oh, Brad sees things. Look how, look how great he is. That's why we complain most of the time. We do it to get attention. We do it to get the approvals. It's, it becomes a, 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 it's called a virtue signal, right? That's not the complaining that was taking place here. It wasn't a signal to, so these Hellenistic Jews would feel good about themselves. That wasn't that. It wasn't so that they would be noticed. It wasn't a social media post that we're clicking share on and hoping everybody likes it and hoping it goes viral. That's not the complaining that they had. Instead, it was a type of complaining that fed a result. The other type of complaining, had that gone that way, had they done the Kaluzma type of complaining, would have killed the movement. It would have exhausted and disqualified the leaders. It, it would have destroyed the unity and deflated the church. Grumblers seldom take their issues directly to those who can resolve them. But here, these complaints were taken directly to the people that can do something about it. And that's the type of complaining uh, that, that, that kills the movement. The type of complaining that kills the movement is the type of complaining that got Israel in trouble when they complained. But that's not happening here. It's more like, hey, did you, did you see what's going on in the distribution of food area in our room? And the other person goes, yeah, I did notice that. Okay. I'm just checking to make sure I'm seeing this right. Oh, we need to say something about this because it's not good. 
And it starts off in a quiet conversation, and that's as loud as it gets. And this is what's so amazing about these Greek-speaking Jews. They saw a problem, and rather than make the problem about them and blow up the whole system, they decided to say something about the problem in a constructive manner that would fix the issue and continue the work of the church. And so they quietly and respectfully made sure not to cause any attention besides the issue at hand. Now watch what happens afterwards. The Greek Jews go there and they said something, they saw, they, they saw something, and, and, and now it, how it usually goes for us is we saw something, we said something, cool, we're out. I, I've done my job, I've brought it to your attention, I'm going to do nothing about it, I'm going to go back to my life. No, they actually, they actually started to fix the problem. They said this, so the 12 gathered all the disciples, this is in verse 2, together and said, it would not be suitable for us, and this is the apostles talking, to neglect the ministry of the word of God and wait on tables. Now really quick, this wasn't a uh, degrading statement. We can read this and go, oh, how snooty of them. They don't want to wait on tables or how snooty of them. They're not real servants. No, 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 no. In reality, there's a lot of work that they had to do the statement was, about, was more about how they can't do everything. They have some things that they're in charge of. There is a huge organization that's being built underneath their feet, and they can't do it all. There's a misconception in the church, and sometimes church leaders fall into this, that the church leaders do all the things. Well, that's not true. There's no way possible that we can. There's, there's no way the disciples could have kept up with everything. There's no way uh, church leaders can keep up with everything. I can do a lot, but I can't do it all. Dylan can do more than me. He can't do it all. And so there's this misconception that the church leaders, and that's not, that's not what they're, they're not saying we're too important. They're saying there's no way we can handle this. Leaders have limits. And these 12 have limits. And this is mirroring the book of Exodus. There was a time Moses is out there and he's answering all the questions of all millions of people of Israel. And he's the only guy in charge. And in Exodus 18, his father-in-law comes up and notices that it's not going well. It was a strain on Moses's marriage so much that he sent his wife to live with their father-in-law until this whole thing was settled. And his father-in-law says, you're not moving back in. And he goes and visits Moses, and he looks around and goes, wow, this is great. This, look what God's doing through you. And then he takes a closer look, and in, and in chapter 18, 17, it says, Moses, this is Jethro talking, what you're doing is not good. You can't do this all. You and these people who've come to you will only wear yourself out. The work is too heavy for you. You cannot handle it alone. And then Moses, at this point, appoints elders, 70, to hear the request of the people so it's not all on his shoulders. This is the story that Luke is mirroring. If, if you really want to have some fun in your quiet time, read Exodus and Luke back to back, and they kind of mirror each other for a while. This is the mirror image of this. It was not good for the disciples, just like it was not good for Moses to do everything. And so they said, we can't do this. We recognize our limits to our leadership. We recognize what we can and cannot do. We can't handle all of this, so we're going to need some help. The Greek Jews saw something. They said something. And it wasn't the disciples' problem to fix. It was a problem. But watch what they did. Verse 3 of chapter 6. Brothers and sisters, 
Choose seven men from among you. How many did Moses pick? Seventy. Choose seven men from among you who are to be known as full of the Spirit, full of wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the Word. Choose seven among you. And look at the criteria. Full of the Spirit. Full of the Spirit and not anger. Full of the Spirit and not an agenda. Full of the Spirit and not vying for attention. Full of the Spirit and what God is trying to do among them. So there's some character issues that they needed to have here. And, and so they, they appoint these and he says, choose seven from among who? You. You saw this problem. You're bringing this problem to me. Now guess what? you get to be a part of this solution. They saw it, they said it, and rather than wait around for somebody else to do something, the disciples said, this is your responsibility, or this could be your responsibility. And they make a solution together. They saw something, they said something, and now they're willing to do something about it. And there's wisdom here. Who best knows the needs of the Hellenistic or the Greek Jews rather than, or better than, the Greek Jews themselves. Nobody. The, the 12 are Hebraic Jews. They speak Aramaic. They don't know the unique issues that's bothering the Hellenistic folks. And so they, they say, you know what? We can't do this right. How about you take over care ministries? And they call them this, this word that we still use today, deacon. And you take care of them. You're great for it. You're already noticing it. You do it. And so in verse 5, this proposal angered the whole group. No, this proposal was actually pleased the whole group. And they chose Stephen. You can read about him in Acts 7, a man of full of faith and the Holy Spirit. Philip, and you'll read more about him in Acts 8. And then Canner, we don't see more any of these other guys. Timon, he was in The Lion King. That was bad, right? <laughs> Sorry, it was, yeah, Kuna Matata. Uh, uh, Pumba, Paraminus, not Pumba, Nicholas from Antioch, who converted to Judaism. And they presented these men to the apostles who prayed and they laid hands on them. When they laid hands on them, they were transferring like, hey, our authority goes to you. We are behind you in this to solve the problem that was there. And then what was the result? Verse 7, so the word of God spread. And then this another thing, the number of disciples increased rapidly. And a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Priests, uh, probably Jewish priests, the ones that worked in the temple, the ones that were anti-movement of Jesus. And so now the priests see how the new Christian startup church is taking care of widows even widows who had different linguistic barriers, and now they're taking care of them. So there's something about caring for the widow and the orphan and the vulnerable and the immigrant that are bringing even the most stringent of Jews in and saying, hey, something is different about these people. The very ones who observed the problems were the ones who were likely to solve them. Look, in our world, it's easy to sit back and point out What's wrong with everything? We've become very good at doing that. Wrong things are happening. People are mistreated. And we're good at seeing it. We're great at saying something about it. 
But it's another thing for you and I to get out of our chairs or out of our house or away from our computers and actually do something about it. To put our feet to the ground and put our, our actions where our words have been. The beauty of doing nothing is tempting. But the beauty of doing nothing is that you and I can do nothing perfectly. We don't make mistakes when we don't do anything. You should see me on the couch watching the 49ers game. I'm way better than half of the wide receivers on that field. Thank you. I'm so much better. Get me on the field? No way. We play armchair whatever all the time. Well, they should be doing this, this, and this, and that they're not doing it. Yeah, what are you doing is the question. The people who do nothing do it perfectly, but only when you do something about the things that you see, it becomes impossible then to do it without mistakes. So we like to poke fun at the people who are sharing the gospel with these big signs, like, oh, they're doing it wrong. Yeah, but they're doing something. Or this person's not doing this. Yeah, but they're doing sometimes more than us. Therefore, the only people uh, contributing to the constant criticisms They do it to feel morally superior or uh, intellectually superior because oftentimes when we don't want to do anything, we don't want to get our hands dirty and be a part of fixing the issue. Rather, we just sit around and talk about it. That's what we've done in our culture. Sometimes seeing something must lead to saying something. And then after that, saying something must lead to doing something. And this is the challenge that this passage brings whether the, the injustices that we see are based in race, whether someone's being discriminated because of racism or prejudice that we see, or whether someone's being pushed aside because of a political viewpoint, because they voted for somebody differently, or they believe an issue differently, or because they come from a different uh, place of housing, maybe they don't have a house. You see the discrimination that happens. Yes, you can see it. Great. And you said something, but are you willing to do something? Are you willing to open your eyes and notice the brokenness that's around us? Are you willing to have constructive conversations about this that don't divide and push people to the side and, and, and make contentious places or, and kill the movement of the church? Are you willing to have constructive conversations or are you willing just to divide? Are you willing to be a part of solution or do you want to talk about how bad everything is? Notice that when they brought this up, when they said something, it didn't divide the church. And that's the temptation that we have. Well, okay, so we're just going to divide the church in two, and the Hellenistic Jews will be over here, and the Hebrew Jews will be over here. We'll worship at 9.30, you worship at 11. Cool. And there's two churches. No, 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 no. They said, no, we have to figure this out together. The segregation doesn't happen anymore. It's not good. It's not good for the church. It doesn't build church unity. It builds two different churches, two different communities. And now you keep dividing and dividing. You're not growing towards Christ together. We're not going to do that. We're going to learn how to do this together. You're going to help. You know, there's a lot of this mystique about what's my calling? What does Jesus want me to do? What am I going to do with my life? How am I going to do it? What, you know, the, the question that I thought I would have solved by the time I turned 40, but I'm 43 now, and it's still not solved. What am I going to do with the rest of my life? Right? That's the question. And we we put this mystique around it saying, 
well, I'm waiting for a sign that God's going to give me something to do. Well, maybe the sign's right in front of you. What do you see? Where do you see brokenness in this world? Think about it. Drive down Aurora. Where do you see brokenness? Maybe in your apartment building, in your office, in your school, in your classroom. Where do you see brokenness? Do you see it? It's there. Whether you notice or not, do you see it? So the first step to finding out what God wants to do with the rest of your life, whether you're 21 or 68 right now, is do you see what's going on around you? Open your eyes. See the brokenness. And then when you see it, your first step is, well, maybe I should say something about this. Maybe there's, maybe there's something already going on that we can jump in with. Or, 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 or you know, maybe, maybe there's something here that I should say something. Not cause division. Not cause an uproar. Say something. And if you say something, then the last part is simple. Are you willing to do something about it? And there's your calling. There's what God's wanting you to do with your life. He showed it to you. You just now took the time to notice. One, one author, Henry Nowen, says that your, your calling is right where what angers you the most and what breaks your heart the most meet. That's the sweet spot. That's what we see with these Greek Jews. Hey, these people aren't, aren't it's not working. Yeah, the lawnmower is running. We have no idea how it's running, but there's this, it's not scooping the grass right. There's still a problem, and we got we to fix that. Yeah, you're right. We need to fix this. We have no idea what we're doing. You can help us figure this out. Now you're in charge. See something. Say something. And do something. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you uh, that we see this, <laughs> how to avoid problems or how to navigate issues when they arise right here in the scriptures. You give us a blueprint. Lord, open our eyes to see the hurting that's going on in our world. Take the blinders off of us so that we can see it. Lord, would you give us the courage then after we see it to say something about it in a constructive, well-meaning way that encourages, that drives towards a solution instead of a magnification of the problem. And God, would you give us then the ability to, once we say something and, and see something, to be willing to jump in and do something about it. Lord, you're still bringing people into the church. You're still growing this thing. It, it's, it might not feel like there's thousands and thousands of people coming to church here in Seattle, but other parts of the world, it's still growing. There's still a massive pe- amount of people finding hope in you. And so, Lord, as your movement grows, as your kingdom becomes more present here on earth as it is in heaven, may we be willing to step into the areas of hurt and brokenness and bring your restoration and peace. May we be able to look at parts of, of systems and, and say, hey, it's not working for everyone here. We need to fix this. And then may we jump in and be a part of the solution. God, we thank you for using us, imperfect people, to do your perfect work. 
to bring hope to many through Christ. In Jesus' name we pray.